All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 20. The title to our message this morning is The Eighth Plague and the War for Covenant Children. So returning to Exodus chapter 10, please remember that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord." So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and with our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore give my sin, please, only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out 
from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that promise that your son has given us, that where two or three are gathered in your name, there he will be in the midst of them. And so, Lord, we are gathered in your name. We ask that the Spirit of Christ would open up eyes, open up ears, open up hearts to hear your word this morning, that we may be moved from one degree of glory to another. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So recapping what we've seen thus far, in plagues one through six, God showed his power over the earth. In plagues seven through nine, he's now showing his power over the heavens. He is the Lord of earth and of heaven. And in this plague, it's not so much God displaying his power over the locusts. It is that, but it's more. Yahweh is showing his power over the wind. Halfway through verse 13, we read that the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all day and all night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The Egyptian god... Shu was believed to hold power over the wind. They have the best names, don't they? Shu. And interestingly, he was the god uh, in Egypt who separated the sky from the earth, allowing the formation of the world. And his name, ironically, means emptiness. And that's precisely what he has shown to be in this particular plague. His power over the wind was empty when Yahweh summoned the winds from the east. And of course, this plague, as we've seen, is worse than the previous one, as that one was worse than the one before it. These are, there's a progressiveness in these plagues. In the last plague, the hail killed every creature, plant, animal, and man that was left in the field. That, that plague brought immediate death. But this plague promised the slow death of starvation for days and weeks and months to come. It brought an immediate famine upon the land and instantly turned Egypt into a third world country. Verse 15 says, The locusts covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants of the land, all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. And one author notes here that because the whole land was uh, affected, food had to be purchased then from other countries, in effect, decapitalizing Egypt. And Pharaoh lamented grievously over this in verse 17. He said, plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Strongest language thus far. Locusts brought death. Listen um, to this account 
of a locust infestation from the Canary Islands just 300 years ago. And keep in mind, however bad this account is, that account in Egypt was the worst one that's ever happened. From an eyewitness, we read this. The air was so full of them that I could not eat in my chamber without a candle. All the houses being full of them, even the stables, the barns, chambers, garrets, and cellars. I used cannon powder and sulfur to be burnt to expel them, but all to no purpose. For when the door was opened, an infinite number came in. And the others went out, fluttering about, and it was a troublesome thing when a man went abroad to be hit on the face by those creatures, so that there was no opening one's mouth, but some would get in. Yet all this was nothing, for when we were to eat, these creatures gave us no respite. When we cut a bit of meat, we cut a locust with it. And when a man opened his mouth to put in a morsel, he was sure to chew one of them. I've seen them at night when they sit to rest them, that the roads were four inches thick of them, one upon another, so that the horses would not trample over them. But as they were put on with much lashing, pricking up their ears, snorting and treading fearfully, the wheels of our carts and the feet of our horses, bruising these creatures, there came forth from them such a stench as not only to offend the nose, but the brain." I was not able to endure it, but was forced to wash my nose with vinegar and hold a handkerchief dipped in it continually at my nostrils, end quote. And that was like, you know, nothing compared to the Egyptian plague. And then there was the unending appetite of these flying insects. They could eat their own weight, um, of vegetation in one day. One author reports that during locust infestations, any clothing that was left on a clothesline would be completely eaten except for the tiny piece protected by the clothespin. Laura Ingalls Wilder reported of a local uh, locust infestation in her day. She said, there was one big sound made of tiny nips and snips and gnawings. They were eating. You could hear the millions of jaws biting and chewing day after day. They kept on eating. The house of Egypt was left desolate. You know what the next plagues are, darkness and then the death of the firstborn. This was the complete ruination of the land. And this plague gives us specific insight that the previous plagues did not. Pharaoh was willing to let the men go, but he refused to release the little ones, Israel's children. As a manifestation of the dragon or Satan on earth, Pharaoh was in a battle with Yahweh over the future of the world. For the covenant, of children, uh, for the covenant children to be left in Egypt would have meant the end of God's plan of redemption. 
And, and this is only one of the many episodes that's played out in world history again and again and again and in our day. How important are our children? Our children are the one thing that the dragon covets most. And Yahweh is willing to overthrow empires for the sake of our children. And this plague brings into focus the battle throughout world history over the children of the Lord. So let's look to our big idea. That I'm going to give you a slightly revised version. It's not in your notes exactly like this. Covenant children are the battleground in history between Yahweh and the dragon. Covenant children are the battleground in history between Yahweh and the dragon. So let's look, first of all, then, at our doctrine. Now, it says 19 times in the book of Exodus that God, you know, hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh hardened his heart, or his heart was hardened. And we know that God hardened his heart judicially because of Pharaoh's rebellion. But we have three additional reasons in our passage for God hardening Pharaoh. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. And the heart of his servants, number one, that I may show these signs of mine among them. Two, that you may tell them in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them. And three, that you may know that I am the Lord. So one at a time, we know, first of all, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to show these signs to the Egyptians, in order to stop the mouths of those who would put Yahweh on the same level as these other gods, and, as we saw last time, to put fear in the hearts of other Egyptians that he had appointed to save. Remember, in Exodus 12, 38, a multitude of Egyptians left with the Israelites. So it's first for the Egyptians' sake. Secondly, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Israel could tell their sons and daughters of the great works of God. What we saw this two, three weeks ago. Had God rescued Israel on day one, without all of the multiplication of God's wonders, God's glory would have remained largely hidden. Calvin says here, had they been redeemed by any ordinary method, the praise due to God would soon have been forgotten. And Israel did, in fact, tell all of these wonders to their children. We read later in the psalm, Psalm 44, 1, O God, we have heard with our ears our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. In fact, you cannot read the Old Testament without constantly hearing in the law or the Psalms or the prophets about how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. It's everywhere. Israel's sons and grandsons were told of the wonderful things that God did in Egypt. It was the children's bread. It was the nourishment of generations, what God did. Psalm 78, 4, we will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, 
and the wonders that he has done. And this is so vital to see. I'm getting older. I have a lot more gray than I used to have. I think it's mostly from you guys. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm asking myself more and more and more. What am I going to pass down to my children? What inheritance am I going to leave for my children when I'm gone? John Crawford, in his book, Baptism is Not Enough, How Understanding God's Covenant Changes Everything, he says this. Perhaps the most important aspect of the succession of the family covenant is that is that it is through the family bonds that wealth is transferred. Wealth is transferred, father to son, mother to daughter. But he says, I am not speaking only about money and physical assets. The love of God, wisdom, and the understanding of Scripture are the most important aspects of family inheritance. It takes all of these, as well as physical assets, to carry out the family's God-given purpose, end quote. Crawford is saying that the most important wealth that we can give to our children is the knowledge of God, the fear of God, the love of God, the power of God, the plan of God, and the glory of God. If, if a father gives his child the whole world, but fails to teach him with his words and with his life that the Lord of heaven is to be loved and believed, then he has left his child desolate. And that's the third reason given at the end of verse 2 for why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that his signs can be shown, so that, end of verse 2, you may know that I am the Lord. God did what he did in Egypt uh, so that future generations of covenant children would believe on him, would love him, would spend their lives living for him. God was aiming at generational succession. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says here that the covenant of God with its benefits and blessings perpetuates itself from child to child, from generation to generation. Think of a link of chains. While grace is not automatically inherited, as a rule, it is bestowed upon the line of generations. Now you see... Uh, dear congregation, this is what God is aiming at when he forms the family. The family is not an invention of man. It, it, it's not an invention of the state. It's pre-political. L listen to one verse, what, what God says about families. Malachi 2.15. Did God not make them, husband and wife, one? with a portion of his spirit in their union. Stop right there. That, that, that's amazing in itself. Husbands and wives, 
You have an individual here, Christian, an individual Christian here. They both are filled with the Spirit of God. And yet, when they come together as husband and wife in that union, God bestows upon them a special portion of His Spirit. And, and He says, And what was God seeking? Malachi says. What was God seeking in giving that Spirit? Godly offspring. Offspring that would belong to the heart, belong to the Lord in heart and mind and soul. The Lord gives husbands and wives a portion of his spirit in their union because he desires the souls of their children. But so does the dragon. The dragon desires the souls of our children as well. Pharaoh rebuked Moses' first appeal, but then Moses' servants came up with this compromise, they thought. Halfway through verse 7, they suggest to Pharaoh, well, let the men go. Verse 8, so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? And Moses knows immediately what's behind this sinister question. And so he says in verse 9, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. The covenant made with Abraham includes children, and Moses is not at liberty to part with one covenant child. He denies Pharaoh's compromise, and Pharaoh responds in verse 10. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. This is full-throated arrogance. Pharaoh is, is essentially saying, the only way you get your children is if Yahweh pries them out of my dead, cold hands. He was prophesying, wasn't he? Like Caiaphas was prophesying against his will. The dragon will not peaceably part with covenant children. Like Yahweh, the dragon knows how to play the long game. This wasn't just about Egypt. This was about the future of the world. Whoever controls the children controls the world. That brings us to our doctrine this morning. Covenant children are the battleground in history between Yahweh and the dragon. And consider three proofs for this. Proof number one is King Ben-Hadad. King Ben-Hadad. Please turn with me to 1 Kings 20, verses 1 through 3. Here we read a record of the nation of Syria coming against the northern tribe of Israel while the wicked King Ahab is in control. 1 Kings 20, verse 1. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses, and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. 
And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. Listen to what Joe Boot says about this particular passage. Ben-Hadad's request was not random, but it carried enormous significance. If Ahab were to surrender his wealth, it would leave the royal treasury empty. To surrender his wives to be raped and placed in Ben-Hadad's harem would humiliate and shame Ahab. But, but the biggest and most significant demand was that his own children be handed over. His sons and daughters would be taken and re-educated in terms of an alien faith, an alien religion, and an alien morality. The dragon wanted to steal these children to turn them, to thwart the redemptive purposes of God. And though Ahab was a wicked king, Yahweh fought for those children and he overthrew Ben-Hadad. Proof number two, King Nebuchadnezzar. Turn with me, please, to Daniel chapter one. Now, this book opens up um, recording uh, Babylon's conquest and defeat of the nation of Judah. Those were the first few verses. But look at King Nebuchadnezzar. If you took over a country in the ancient world, what would be your first order of business? Well, we see it right here. Look in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning. So he's stealing the best children competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. What's happening here? The dragon took Judah's most promising children and he put them through a Babylonian re-education program including Babylonian literature, Babylonian language and philosophy, that's in verse 4. A Babylonian diet, contrary to God's commands, that's in verse 5, and new Babylonian names in order to erase their Jewish identity, that's in verse 7. What was the dragon doing? He was playing the long game. Nebuchadnezzar already defeated Judah, at least temporarily. How does he ensure a lasting victory? By corrupting their youth they would be lost forever. But Yahweh was with Daniel and and his three friends. And he miraculously preserved them and the rest of the remnant. Proof number three, the rest of world history. 
the rest of world history. This has been the number one strategy of the dragon. In Mein Kampf, Hitler stressed the importance of winning, these are his words, the importance of winning over and then training the youth in the service of a new national state. He said this in a speech on November 6, 1933, quote, when an opponent declares, I will not come over to your side, I calmly say, your child belongs to us already. What are you? I, uh, you will pass on. Your descendants, however, now stand in the new camp. Isn't that precisely the exact strategy that we see today? What is the number one battleground in culture today, right now, right at this moment? Our children. Whether it's drag Drag queen story hour or trans surgeries for kids. The dragon understands how to play the long game. This is, so right now, the, the nation of Germany has outlawed homeschooling. Recently, the president of the United States has said that our children belong to the state. We can multiply example after example after example. They're right there. They're right on the surface. You don't have to dig for it. You just need to rake it. Pharaoh, King Ben-Hadad, Hitler, and the current regime all have one thing in common. They understand where the true battle lies with our children. With our children. So that's our doctrine. That covenant children are the battleground in history between Yahweh and the dragon. So then let's look at our, our duties this morning, and, and we have three of them. Our first duty is to examine ourselves. And I want to start with our children, with boys and girls that are here today. Children, do you know that the Lord has a claim on you. Uh, you're no different than these Hebrew boys and girls that are in this passage. Almighty God has instructed your parents uh, to tell you all of the mighty works of God that he has done so that you would love him and trust him and cling to him. God gave your parents... Your, your mom and your dad, a special portion of his Holy Spirit just so that he could produce godly offspring in you. But do you know that the dragon wants you as well? That old serpent, the devil, desires to turn you to his side. And so even from a very young age, as a young child, you are in the middle of a war. So take this to heart, dear children. The best gift that your parents could give you is their instruction in the Lord. What they teach you about the Lord from the Bible. Don't despise that gift like Esau did. I, I imagine that some of you today were thinking, why is Ben going on and on about all these names? Why don't we just skip that chapter? Who, what line was that? 
It was Esau's line. What nation was that? That was Edom. Who was Edom? They were enemies of God. How did that take place? Do you remember what Esau did? Esau despised his birthright. Genesis 25, 34 says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way, and thus Esau despised his birthright. Children, Esau traded his greatest treasure, his birthright, for a bowl of soup. He traded the knowledge of God For the fleeting pleasure of the world, he had the inheritance of the firstborn, the greatest treasure, the honor for generations, and yet he lost it all because he did not value the instruction of his parents about the Lord. Boys and girls, are you valuing the treasure that your your parents are giving you about the Lord? Don't you see that that is evidence in itself of how much God loves you? He's given you every advantage in the world by giving you Christian parents so that you would follow him all the days of your life. Perhaps you're here this morning as a child and, or an adult, and perhaps you say, but my parents are not believers. How does that apply to me? Well, look where you are. Look what God has done. He's brought you into the church. What does that tell you? Tell you that he desires your soul. He desires to be your heavenly father. He desires to start a new work of God in you so that you could be a blessing for generations to come. He's brought you into a new family with new spiritual fathers and new spiritual mothers. So children, examine yourselves. Our second duty is to consider, for parents, to consider the gift that our children are. Fathers and mothers, it's so easy to get caught up in the the busyness of life. The wheels keep turning, the cogs keep on moving. Have you considered lately the precious gift that your children are? Is there anything that you possess that is more precious than your children? Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. What does that mean? One commentator says here, The psalmist is not only saying that God gave you your children. Children are not only a gift to us from the Lord, they are a heritage from the Lord. The word heritage carries the meaning of inheritance. When a father hands down an inheritance to his children, he is giving his children what belonged to him. Likewise, when the father gives us children... He is giving us what belongs to him. The children are his children. 
Parents, God is entrusting you with his children, with covenant children. What could, what could possibly surpass that? What this means, as Abraham Kuyper once said, is that God is the one that's in charge of their upbringing. And, and oh, how God has designed them, especially when they're little ones, to be ready to hear the word of the Lord. Listen how Kuyper continues here. Um, God the Lord could have created the children of men to be born in such a way that in the first years of their life, they would not be subject to influences. They would be unable to absorb permanent impressions. But on the contrary, God causes man to be born with a heart as tender and soft as wax. The young child is extremely susceptible to impressions. That's why God told Moses to tell this in the hearing of your sons and your grandsons, what I have done. He, God wants the soft wax of their hearts formed by hearing of the stories of his great deliverance. What a great gift God has given to Christian parents. We, we have the privilege of nourishing our children's souls with the stories of God's almighty works. And he's given them a heart so they'll be a little parrot. They, they, they will learn. They, their, their whack, the wax of their heart will be turned as you turn it with these stories of God. Our third duty is to rebuke. We, we have an obligation as the people of the Lord to warn and to rebuke those who would attempt to turn children away from the Lord, whether it's covenant children or otherwise. There are pharaohs of our age, and they must be rebuked, whether those pharaohs are corporations or whether those pharaohs are politicians or whether those pharaohs are teachers. Don't you see that God has overturned empires for this sin? Destroying children is the work of the dragon, and it is a most wicked sin. Part of our witness in this world as Christians is to not only proclaim the good news of Christ, but it's also to tell the bad news. God judged Egypt for murdering and for corrupting the children of the Lord. Question, has God changed? Is anything different does God's heart towards children of the earth different now? I, the Lord, do not change. So, so dear people of the Lord, be bold and be courageous in the hour that we live. Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Our, you know, in a couple of days here, we're entering into the most notorious month of the year, a so-called Pride Month. And so ask yourself, how can God use you to expose the works of darkness against children? How can God use you to rebuke the pharaohs of this age, the agents of the dragon who seek to devour children? 
Let's look finally then at our delight this morning. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you have to understand that it looks like the, the dragon won. God did rescue Israel from Egypt. They did become a nation. And then what's the rest of the story in the Old Testament? They steadily apostatized from God until they were taken into captivity and Jerusalem was overthrown. Chronologically, the Old Testament uh, ends with a remnant returning to Jerusalem to find their city burned down to the ground and their temple destroyed. And the intertestamental period between Matthew and Malachi is no better. Uh, during world history, it's the time when Alexander the Great rose and conquered the world. And then the rise of the Roman Empire followed, which John calls in the book of Revelation, the beast from the sea. So yes, it, it, Yahweh did win in Egypt, but it looks like, it seems like, that the dragon won after that. But we have to remember what Pharaoh told Moses. Your men can go, but your little ones must be left behind. Moses said, no, not one child. And then God ruined Egypt with the locusts. He would not suffer even one child to be under the dragon. Except for he did suffer one child. Dear congregation, there was a price for Israel's freedom. There's a price for our freedom. One child would have to suffer under the dragon, one child would have to be corrupted and abased and tortured and forsaken in the place of all the rest. And that child, that son, is the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I were born into a slavery that is infinitely worse than the slavery in Egypt, the slavery of sin. And you and I were born under a tyrant that's infinitely worse than Pharaoh, that ancient serpent, the devil. And God demanded from the dragon that we be freed. God said, let my people go. But the only way that God could be holy and just at the same time is if God made a trade, one child for all the rest. Don't you see that that's the gospel? That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son over to the dragon to become a curse, to be slain on the cross. And just as those locusts devoured Egypt and ruined her and made her desolate, so Jesus Christ was made desolate and ruined on the cross. This is what Galatians 3.13 says, that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Jesus is the final propitiation, the once for all wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. And this is why we know that history is not a story of the dragon winning. Because this Christ rose from the dead. It was impossible for death to hold him. 
Death has been defeated. The dragon has been defeated. And what he has been doing ever since is freeing children, freeing souls from the tyrant. Loved ones, this is the grand story that we get to tell our sons and our grandsons, our, our daughters and our granddaughters. So I, so I charge you, I charge you, people of the Lord, just as Yahweh charged Israel, tell this to your children, tell this to your children's children. To, to tell in Hebrew means to uh, recount, to rehearse, to declare. It's not just a one-time telling, it's a telling and a retelling and a retelling. The gospel story is the richest inheritance that you could ever give your children because it contains all the greatest works of God. It contains everything that your child needs to know. Listen to what one author says here. The gospel is a true story based on the facts of history. Jesus' virgin birth, his virtuous life, his vicarious atonement, his victorious resurrection. It explains who we are the people of God. It explains where we came from, a life of sin and misery. It explains where we are going to live with Christ in mansions of glory. It explains who God is, the Father of mercy and love. And it explains why we are here, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So parents, tell your covenant children what God has done for them through Christ. Tell it to them during family worship. Tell it to them during vacation. Tell it to them when you cook them breakfast. Tell it to them when you give them a spanking. Tell it to them when they're scared. Tell it to them when they're proud. Tell it to them when they're sorrowful. Every moment is a moment to tell them what Christ has done. These are the vows, aren't they? What what we've taken in our covenant membership together, we will endeavor to bring up our children and to support every other parent toward this end in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to seek the salvation of our family and our friends. Perhaps this kind of message is discouraging to you because you feel like you've already blown it with your children. Perhaps you're a grandparent and you have children that are outside of the covenant of grace, outside of the gospel. I want to offer you you three comforting truths. First, take heart, loved ones. Your sins have been forgiven by Christ, even your failures as a parent. We all have failures. Every single parent has failed tremendously. Our children are not saved by perfect parents. They're saved by the grace of God alone. Second, our text says that we are to tell not only our sons, but our grandsons. Do you have grandchildren? then you still have work to do. (laughs) 
Tell them, those precious grandchildren, what Christ has done. The Lord is not done with you. You still have marching orders. Do you, I, I don't know if this is true of any of you today, but I am a saved Christian today. My, my wife and my children walk with the Lord today because of one great-great-grandmother, my grandmother Crombie. She took her grandson, my dad, to church. And salvation was born. That grandparent has become a blessing for generations. So don't lose heart. Thirdly, don't give up on your lost children. The gospel is not a trifle thing. It's not empty words. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. God defeated Pharaoh, he overturned the empire of Egypt. He raised his son from the dead. Can he still not save? Pray for your children. Pray, tell them and retell them what Christ has done. God can cause a wind by his spirit to blow those locusts back into the sea. Don't lose hope. Tell them what God has done through Christ. It's the very power of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that we, we get to see in passages like this that you, you care deeply for our children. You care deeply for your glory. That this historical story that happened 3,500 years ago is still being retold today, generations and generations later. And we ask God that as it's being retold, it would have the effect of causing us to know that the Lord, that He is God. We pray for our marriages this morning, Lord. We pray for those who have children this morning, Lord, that your spirit would not strive with those marriages in vain, but that godly offspring would be produced. We pray for our children, Lord, that they would turn their hearts to you, that they would love you with all of their body and all of their mind and with all of their strength, with all of their soul. We pray all of these things, Lord, so that your name could be made famous over all the earth. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.